You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hi, I'm Naomi, and today I'll be reading from Matthew 7, 1 to 12. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Naomi, for reading the word so well. Uh, my name's Lee, uh, Lee Diprose. I'm a uh, lay pastor here at City on the Hill West. We're turning to uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verses 1 to 12 this morning. Uh, last week, uh, Luke uh, took us to the latter part of Matthew chapter 6, and we learned together there's two things we need to avoid. One is the matter of greed in respect to money, and the second thing is the matter of anxiety. Uh, the matter of anxiety, because uh, we tend, uh, when we get anxious and worried, we tend to uh, uh, like to be in control ourselves. But uh, at the end of Matthew 6, it says that we should seek first the kingdom of God and uh, his righteousness. That means we should uh, appreciate that King Jesus is in control and we need to submit to him and to know him. Well, there's a wonderful interconnectedness and a wonderful um, correlation that goes on between uh, the various points that Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount. You can read it and you can think, oh, well, this is a bit disjointed, it's a bit hickledy-pickledy, but not so, because it was the Holy Spirit that was with the Lord Jesus as he's up on the mount and, and sharing the sermon. And so there's a, there's a togetherness in regard to what he had to say. And so that leads us to the chapter 7 this morning of, um, of Matthew. And, and we see together there's, there's two things. There's one thing we must avoid and there's another thing that we should adopt. Now, <clears throat> this passage reminds me of a situation uh, that I had with my mother years ago. I remember this passage in Matthew 7 being a top uh, well, I should say a hot topic of conversation between my mother and I over the kitchen sink. It was 1971 and I'd just finished my first year at Bible college. And one thing about students at Bible college, the first year you think you know it all, the second year you don't know much, and the third year you realise you don't know very much at all. So I was on the end of the first year and I thought I knew a fair bit. And uh, there was a Christmas Day service being held in the local Wellstead Community Hall. So I went along with my mum. The service was instigated by the Bunbury Anglican Diocese who sent over a guest preacher. He was a young guy. He was a young guy from Melbourne. He was a Monash uh, University divinity student. And he'd read a book. He'd read a book called Honest to God by... Bishop J.A.T. Robinson, he was the Bishop of Woolwich in England, 
And he wrote this book called Honest to God, and it really sent great waves through the evangelical church around the world. Robinson's hot-to-trot idea was that in view of the scientific age, the church needed to become more relevant, and for that to happen, our ideas of God need to be rethought and reimagined. We needed to abandon the idea of God being a supernatural, transcendent father figure who watches over us and listens to us and see him as more being founded inside of us, in our own being. Well, everything that this uh, Melbourne Divinity student shared that day clashed with what I'd learned in my first year of theology class. And uh, I made some terse remark to him after the service and then went home and I had my Bible-bearing evangelical guns loaded, holstered and ready to fire. And I fired them at my mum over the kitchen sink. I was really, really cross with what this young guy had delivered, what he'd shared. A lot of the guys, uh, a lot of the men and women that had actually come to the service only um, turned up periodically. Mostly the men only turned up on Christmas Day or once a year. And they got that dished up to them. So I fired up. I told my mother how disgusted I was with the message. Well, mum had three boys and she had uh, expertise in calming us. And so she calmed me. And the way she calmed me, she took me to Matthew chapter 7. For he who judges may well be judged. And uh, that concerned me over a number of years as to whether I was being disobedient to the Lord Jesus here, uh, Lord Jesus here or just being scurrilously overzealous? Was my carping criticism uh, really on about the preacher or was it about me too? Was my response more about being self-righteous and not seeing the ugliness of my own sin and my own inconsistency? Well, let's uh, go into this passage and uh, look at it in a number of ways this morning. And firstly, look at the matter of what we need to avoid. Jesus prohibits possessing a judgmental attitude. The command uh, spelled out in verse 1 is made with a view to being answerable to Jesus. He's our king. He's our Lord. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we must remember that in all our interpersonal relationships, we are walking under the Father's eye. We've sung about that already this morning. I had occasion just to listen to the Gettys uh, that are well-known uh, Christian singers, along with Heather Headley, uh, singing an old classic called His Eye is on the Sparrow. You may have heard it. When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. You see, this command, we can think it's all about the horizontal, about our interpersonal relationships of how we regard other people. But it's not just there. It also concerns our relationship with God. It concerns our vertical relationship. In fact, it has more to do with, uh, with God, our Father, and relating to him as one of his kingdom children, of relating to him in a responsible and accountable way. It's why Jesus didn't mince his words here or beat around the bush. He command, his command here is quite blunt and to the point. It has authority and it has direction. And it addresses a very bad habit that all too often pops up in us human beings. It relates to being those who are critical, correcting and censorious in our attitudes. 
And we, if we are a disciple of Christ here this morning, we are not exempt. We have a sinful human nature. We are prone to sinning. And the Lord Jesus wants to arrest that sinning tendency. He's saying, don't be given to making hasty negative judgments respecting others. Judgments that highlight others' shortcomings just to make ourselves look good. Now, the Lord Jesus, uh, speaking about judgments here, uh, doesn't foreclose the importance of being a discerning, assessing and an evaluating person. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be undiscerning blobs who make no value judgments and have no opinion about what is right and wrong. I mean, over in verse 15 of Matthew 7, it says, Watch out for false prophets. Over in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. And there's other passages of the Bible that speak about the importance of being discerning, of standing up for the truth. Uh, John Stott puts it well. The command is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. So we've got to, we've got to watch ourselves. We've got to watch uh, writing people off simply because they uh, have failed in some area or other. I think the command speaks to us because it reminds us we're, often we're too hasty in condemning someone. And Jesus is saying this, he's saying, you are not in the place of my father. You are not in God's place. You are not the final arbiter in regard to people and uh, where they are at. You are not the final judge. Over in Romans 12 and verse 19 it says, judgment or vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, the Lord is the one who, who watches over all, who sees everything about us and he's, he's the arbitrator. He's the one who, who looks at us and sees where we're really at. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. That's why the Bible says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In a way, I was wrong. Uh, in a way, I was right. In a way, I was right in reacting to the young uh, preacher on Christmas Day. But in another way, I was wrong. As I reflected on, on that over the years, I realised I was wrong because my righteous indignation was muddled up or muddied up with self-righteousness. Don Carson says, we prostitute righteousness into self-righteousness and perfection into a perfect reputation. Now, judgmentalism doesn't just uh, pop up or occur or rise up because of uh, our sinful nature, sometimes it arises because it's precipitated and stirred by the world in which we live. We have a world today or a society today that is besotted with judgmentalism. I don't know about you, but it appears to me that the press has become very pharisaic. They take the high ground of being self-righteous and go on witch hunts to us to broadcast people's mistakes and shortcomings. This week I was reading an article by David Penberthy, a News Corp Australia columnist, who highlighted the toxic tones of judgmentalism that are prevailing in our digital age. He pointed out how young people used to be able to escape from fellow students' criticisms and their judgmental attitudes and their bullying by leaving school, leaving the school grounds after the final bell and retreating to the safety and security of their homes. But now those judgments of other students follow them. They follow them around all day and all night on their smartphones. And they cop this ridicule from their fellow students over the most ridiculous things. And they leave their victims suffering, the fact of either getting too many dislikes and not enough likes. 
but uh, they are not the young people are not the only ones to suffer from judgmentalism. The adult population does as well. Any adult who becomes involved in public debate becomes an easy target to being trashed, shunned or piled on. Doesn't matter where you come from, whether you're a right-winger or a left-winger or a centrist, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you don't have an opinion. If you don't have an opinion, then you will be denounced as a gormless fence-sitter. You see, people are not just disagreeing, but they've descended into outright abuse. And they often end their, um, their tweets with rotten coded endings. Some of the ones I've seen this week are just, they're just terrible. Little wonder that people like Sam Armitage of Channel 7 Sunrise or the South Australian politician uh, Nicole Flint have decided to withdraw from public life. And we, if we're Christ's disciple, we are living in this society, living in this world, and we can actually be drawn into it or we can be affected by it. And the Lord Jesus is saying here, as one of my disciples, you need to be distinctive and you need to be different. And you're not, you are not to conform to the ways of the world. Jesus is saying, don't be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes who were nitpickers and religious fault finders. Jesus is saying here to us, he's saying, don't go down the path of the world. Don't use the social media path of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter to lampoon others. Don't get involved in being a... Uh, a person who feasts on roast preacher every Sunday lunchtime. When Helen and I were involved in ministry in Queensland, um, I had a dear brother, a local preacher and a pillar in the church who regularly rang me up at Sunday lunchtime, mostly to roast me about what I'd said or hadn't said in the sermon. <laughs> It was often discouraging and it affected the conversation around the Sunday meal table because I was still thinking about the phone call. I learned to give him a listening ear and I would tell him that I appreciated his engagement, stating it was better to have some feedback than no feedback at all. Well, Keith and I, we did ministry together and uh, we came to respect and appreciate one another. Jesus is calling us here not to be judgmental, but rather to be gracious and honouring of other people. For that love of Christ which has been given to us to find expression in our relationship to others. Well, this leads us to actually um, explore this passage a little bit further. And when you go to verse 2 of uh, Matthew 7, you see that a judgmental attitude returns judgment. Jesus says that uh, a judgmental attitude can come back and burn you. What you do to others, they can do to you. You can get paid back with your own coin. You can judge and you can be judged. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there are no people who are more sensitive to criticism than those who are always criticising others. You've seen it, perhaps known it. You can give criticism, but can you take it? It's all pretty simple, really. Save yourself some pain, stop criticising. And rather than criticising, be a person that shows appreciation, that tells people how you value them. Now, this matter of a judgmental attitude returning judgment doesn't just concern what other people might do to us. It concerns also the fact of God and his appreciation of us, that we are accountable to him. I mean, if you're a person that's always looking down the nose with your standards of perfection, remember God's watching you. 
and your critical spirit can invite his judgment. You can cause God displeasure. So our first port of call in regard to this matter and having the right attitude is to live a life in the fear of the Lord. I don't mean a scary, scary fear, but I mean uh, where you respect God and you regard him because he is, he is a holy and pure Lord who's looking down at you and doesn't miss one thing that you do or one attitude that you have. Don't be casual. Don't be lighthearted in regard to God. I mean, there is a judgment that God speaks about. It's a judgment of condemnation, and that's final and that's eternal. Unfortunately, through the grace of uh, God shown in his dear son, the Lord Jesus, we can escape that condemnation as he justifies us and frees us from our sin, declares us righteous and imputes that righteousness to us. We become people that uh, where there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Yeah. But... There's another judgment that the Lord speaks about in his word, which is the judgment of rewards or or the judgment of what I call checks, that God checks up on his people. God checks on his people respecting their behaviour and their attitudes. He monitors our performance as his children. And he disciplines the son and the daughter that he loves. I mean, you get a picture of this discipline in regard to the, the Lord's table or the communion over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That people come to the Lord's table and they don't discern how they are, how they're getting on with their fellow believers. Or whether, in fact, they're out of sorts and they really should go and sort out their differences and reconcile before they come and take the uh, the bread and the cup. And Jesus says, uh, or, or Paul says, no wonder there's those that are sick among you and some have even died. But the Lord is saying that his judgment needs to be taken seriously. We need to live in the fear of the Lord. I mean, if we fail to actually address this matter of our attitudes, if we're unwilling to change, then we're not taking God's judgment. We're not taking God seriously. We're not appreciating who he is. We're not appreciating our accountability. We're not appreciating his watchfulness over us. God is calling us here through his son for attitudinal change. He wants us to be those who improve and better ourselves as Christian disciples. Paul puts it this way. If we judge ourselves, we shall not be condemned with the world. Sometimes you've got to criticise yourself. Sometimes you've got to take a good hard look in the mirror and give yourself a talking to. Old Martin Lloyd-Jones says sometimes you've got to sit on the edge of your bed and you've got to give yourself a sermon. You've got to preach to yourself and say, come on. That attitude you showed is not good enough as one of Christ's disciples. The other thing we see is what we find here in verses 3 and 4. The judgmental attitudes can be weirdly inconsistent. This is a colourful and a powerful illustration that's not to be taken for granted. It highlights something that happens even among Christians. It can happen in our gospel community group. It can happen in our Christian circles, our friendship circles. The classic case uh, in the Bible is what you find over in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verses 1 to 7. With regard to King David, now King David is known to be a man after God's own heart and yet we find him stealing another man's wife. He wasn't satisfied with his own harem, so he seduced Bathsheba and got her pregnant. And Bathsheba's husband was away fighting King David's wars. And so to escape being found out, what did David do? He had Bathsheba's husband bumped off, killed. The prophet Nathan came along. 
He got an audience with King David and told him a story, a short story about a poor farmer who was ripped off by a rich neighbouring farmer with a lot of stock. He came, this rich farmer came and stole one lamb of the poor farmer. And David was listening to this story and he got really indignant and incensed. And then he said, who, and then he, 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 in the conversation with Nathan, um, he asked the question, you know, who the bloke was? And Nathan said, you are the man. And David was stopped in his track. Somehow he had failed to see the plank in his own eye and was incensed by the speck of sawdust in the other rich farmer's eye. So easy to copy David's behaviour. Oh, not in those grand dose ways, but just in smaller, more minute ways. But they are equally as bad. Michael Eaton, former senior pastor of the Crisco Fellowship of Churches in Nairobi, Kenya, states, we are all perfectionists when we consider other people, but extremely tolerant when we look at ourselves. Don Carson says, ironically, the worst fault finder, whether in doctrinal or other realms, cannot be convinced of his own fault. The critic will always go off and find somebody else or something else to criticise. I've heard uh, various people talk about uh, and singing off about the prosperity gospel, which is not good, uh, that is actually proclaimed and preached in other churches but then how we have uh, fine pastors who hold to the truth and uh, speak about the true gospel um, here at City on the Hill West. We have to watch that we don't become self-righteous. We have to watch that we don't become hypercritical and that we lose sight of the fact that the church, wherever it is, that the Lord is over the church and he's working out his purposes in all kinds of situations. Case in point um, concerned a young guy called Matt. Matt was years younger than I was, and he was the local captain at the Altona Salvation Army. Uh, we often got together. We rode bikes together. I introduced him to bike riding, and uh, Matt and I would often talk about the, the power of the gospel and the wonderful crosswork of Christ. But we had our differences. We differed uh, doctrinally on a number of matters and particularly we differed in regard to the invitation system. Uh, Matt was big. He didn't mind uh, becoming very emotive to the point where I've seen tears running down his cheeks and he's imploring people to come to Christ and using all manner of emotion to actually uh, persuade them. He was very finny-like, I think. But our differences never got in the way. Matt never criticised and was always willing to work together. <laughs> I remember Matt saying one day, he says, oh, he says, I seem to be an Arminian in the pulpit, but I've become a Calvinist on my knees. Well, dear Matt, um, he invited me, an older man, a man of strong reform uh, convictions, he invited me to preach at his church on more than one occasion. Hats off to Matt in his attitude and approach. It was Christ's love that made the difference. That's what Christ's command is calling us to do, to, to express that love, that grace, to honour others. So he's calling his disciples here to account. And in verse 6, he's calling us to have good attitudes that feature consistency and discretion. We have a wonderful, wonderful, powerful and rich gospel, don't we, to share, into making Jesus known. But we need to be careful about who we put that gospel before. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. If you do, pigs will trample down pearls under their feet and the dogs will turn to attack you. So putting the God's holy gospel before so-called pigs and dogs and false prophets and ferocious wolves in sheep's clothing is not something to be done. So there's a, there's a place for actually recognising people and where they're coming from and uh, how they will receive things. We don't always know, 
but there's a call for discernment. But more than that, there's a call for consistency on our part, that we're true to what we believe, we're true to the gospel we hold to, that we live out the truth of the gospel. If we believe in the grace of God, then we show graciousness. I don't know about you, but my dear wife, Helen, she often pulls me up and says, is that gracious? How easy it is to become hypocritical disciples. And people will pick up on that very quickly. Oh, I thought you were a Christian. And you did something like that. Who are you to give me advice? I've been watching you. Or the family members who are not believers. What about that time when you picked up on me for? I can just see my sisters recalling my bad past to me. Some would have said, though, how ridiculous for a person with a plank in their own eye to seek to be an eye specialist in the lives of others. Don Carson is a wonderful scholar. Uh, I've heard him preach in Melbourne and uh, really appreciated him, appreciate his writings, his depth. He makes a very good observation in regard to this passage of Scripture. He says, in seeking to do full justice to this warning in chapter 7 and verse 6, we ought not to fail to note that five verses are reserved for judgmental people, that's verses 1 to 5, and only one for undiscerning people. That ratio reflects on an accurate assessment of where the greater danger lies. Our great danger lies for those first five verses. Now, all this said, this is what we are to avoid. But then Jesus turns our attention to what should be adopted. And in verses 7 to 11, Jesus encourages a prayerful attitude in life. In the opening six verses, he'd set a lofty standard for possessing good, non-negative, judgmental attitudes. But how do we achieve that? I mean, here's the standard of Jesus way up here and here's me trying to, to work it all out down here. How do we achieve it? Well, Jesus says, you pray. It says, all amidst all life's uncertainties and perplexities and problems and inconsistency, all in the light of all your bad judgmental attitudes, when not knowing whether to speak up or whether to shut up, Jesus says the important thing is to pray. Prayer is what we need. We need the Father's help. We need to see that the Father has opened arms and welcomes us to come to him and speak with him. He's, Jesus is speaking here about the pathway of prayer, the pathway for a disciple to actually follow and tread on and, and go after. And what he says to us here in verse 7, he says, prayer contains a lot of asking. Ask and it will be given to you. And Jesus' point here is that, that prayer is effective that we have a, a faithful heavenly father who loves, who loves to answer his children's prayers. It will be given you. And so Jesus gives us, he gives us a package, a prayer package or a prayer parcel here. And he says, this is it. This is what you do. You ask, you seek, and you knock. And it's interesting that all three that are mentioned by Jesus, are imperatives and are in the present tense. In other words, it is to be a continuous action of asking, seeking and knocking. We are to persist. We are to persevere. We are not to be a flash-in-the-pan disciple who attends the prayer meeting, goes well for a while and then drifts away and find something else to occupy our attention or for us to give ourselves to. No, he says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Stick at prayer. Why? 
because prayer is effective. It gets things done. I love that verse over in James. It says, the, the, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man is very powerful in its effects. I, I follow football. Uh, I don't follow Hawthorne. I've got a son who follows Hawthorne, the Hawthorne Football Club. So I've read a little bit about uh, the um, history of Hawthorne. But they had a footy coach, John Kennedy Sr. He was renowned for his finals address to his players when he said, do something, do. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, ask, seek and knock. He's saying, do something, go on and pray and stick with it because something happens when you ask and seek and knock. So burn with desire, so passionately pursue God, so long for God for his working. You know, it's a great privilege to be able to ask, seek and knock. I mean, once didn't have access to God. He's holy, we're sinful, there was separation, there was barriers, there was dividing walls because of our sin, but Jesus has come and made atonement for our sin. He's died on the cross. He shed his blood for us. So now he's given us access to the Father so we can go and confidently ask and confidently seek and confidently knock. God's wanting boldness on our part. He's wanting us... A city on a hill family, he's wanting us to keep not keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking in regard to finding premises, a building that uh, will suit the, the congregation, suit and ministry, not to give up on it. I mean, if what Jesus is encouraging here is true, then shouldn't we be knocking down the door to be at prayer? Shouldn't we be gearing up to get onto that Zoom um, prayer meeting at 7.30 of a morning? Shouldn't we be the persons that are being disciplined, that discipline ourselves, that put on the alarm clock, are prepared to make uh, other, do other, um, attend to other things so that we're available for that time? I mean, there's, there's a call here uh, on the part of the Lord Jesus, if we're a disciple, to be fair dinkum about the whole matter of prayer. And this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears our prayers. Here's Jesus. Here's our Lord Jesus Christ in his sermon on the mount. And it hasn't happened when he's done the sermon, but we see it because we have the whole of the scriptures. We see Jesus going to the cross. We see him dying. Then we see him rising. Then we see him ascending. Then we see him enthroned at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us and listening to our intercessions and our petitions. And Jesus is there and he gathers the prayers. He hears your prayers and he takes them to the Father. He says, Father, carry out your will. Work out your will in regard to this prayer that has been offered. Isn't that a huge encouragement? Isn't it? So we should be at the business of prayer. I'll never forget um, driving from Adelaide to Perth years ago. I was at the end of my first year at Bible College and I took a, a nurse by the name of Valda. She was quite a few years older and gave her a, a ride to Perth. And Valda had been involved in ministry in part of a team that went to a little country church uh, 12 months before and saw God's spirit move mightily. Lives were transformed. The church was uh, renewed and uh, reinvigorated. Uh, people came to Christ. It was wonderful. And, and Valda, <laughs> bless her heart, uh, Helen knows Valda a little bit, I think. Valda couldn't stop talking. She loved to natter. And she nattered to me all the way to Western Australia, over hours and hours in the car, but she nattered about God's working, what God had done at Woodner, at this little country church, little Methodist church. And the pastor of that little church, well, once there's an outbreak of God's working, people want to know what the secret is or what the method is or how you organise it or whatever. And so they 
the pastor went to Adelaide to the Methodist Synod and they quizzed him about what he'd done to actually see this happen in the church. Now, I've told this to you, Zach, before. Um, <laughs> Dean Metheringham was the pastor's name. He stood up before the synod after listening to all the questions. Well, he said, God's people prayed and God got out of control and sat down. We need to be expectant of God's working. And the expectation that rose amongst the student body was that to to the point where at 5 a.m. every Friday over my three years in Bible college, there was a group of students meeting to pray for the workings of God. No matter how cold it was, the girls would come down and they'd have their rugs and their blankets wrapped around them and they'd be praying. And sometimes you'd be sitting there shivering, but you'd be praying. That's what Jesus is inviting. Because he's saying here in verse 8, the answer to asking is receiving for everyone who asks receives. And he introduces a reason by using the word for at the beginning of verse 8. But God in his grace and love is ready to hear our prayers and he's keen to answer his people's petitions. He wants us to keenly keenly desire the goods of God. And the almost word-for-word reiteration of of Jesus' words of verse 7 in verse 8 underscores the effectiveness of our praying. He says we only have to ask and it will be given, to seek and we'll find, to knock and the door will be open to us. So he's saying, as disciples, as my disciples, Jesus is saying, you are in a, in a good and healthy and right position to be able to, to, to bring your petitions to God and to see God work. And if, if an evil dad, I mean, here's the comparisons, mate. If an evil dad knows how to give uh, good gifts to his children and if a son uh, uh, asks for, ask for something, asks for a bun, I mean, a decent uh, and caring and loving father certainly might give him a rock, will he? And then these words, how much more? If an evil dad can do good, how much more will a good God do? He will go all the way. He will show his stupendous care for his people. We have a number of um, women who have given birth and a number of women that are expecting to give birth. There's a wonderful verse over in Isaiah 49 verse 15. It says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, God says, I will not forget you. I will not forget you, says God. You may be sitting here this morning under the sound of the word, and looking at those earlier verses, you feel quite smitten in your conscience because of your bad judgmental attitude, because of your uh, hypercriticism. Because umpires get it wrong. Referees get it wrong. Premiers and governments get it wrong. Fellow Christians get it wrong, and we can easily criticise. Seeing a command like this reminds us how frequently we fall short and fail to measure up to Jesus' command. We need to pray. We need to ask God for his forgiveness. We need to ask God for his cleansing. We need to thank God for his forgiveness and thank God for his cleansing. And we need to be people that ask God to change our hearts. So we're persons that are moving on. That's what we can do. Because God in his grace can help us to be merciful, gracious, forgiving. God in his um, goodness and love can help us to mourn over our sin and make us more meek and cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness and uh, be more heartfelt in showing mercy. 
and be good peacemakers. God in his grace can do something in us. Ask, seek, and keep knocking. So that leads us to verses 7 and 8 of our passage, and it shows to us that we can grow in our praying. One thing to see is that in asking, seeking, and knocking, there's there's, there's a growing intensity here. There's a progression that is here. But seeking is more than asking. When seeking appears to produce no answer, we need to be get a little bit more earnest and begin knocking and knocking a little bit more urgently on, the, on heaven's throne room. The indication here is that our prayer life can go up a notch. It can be heightened and it can be deepened. I've seen that. I think Luke said before this, before this service, he said, oh, it's just 12 months now since we've had the morning prayer time going at, at half past seven of the morning. And in that time, I've, I've seen people deepen. I've seen people grow in their praying. The tone of what Jesus is saying here is along the lines of the huge, ever-changing billboard outside the Williams Landing Railway Station. Take a drive and have a look at it. One of the slides that comes up is, it says this, Mmm, mmm, momentum. Have you seen it, Zach? No, have a look. That's what Jesus is talking about here in regard to praying. He's saying there needs to be momentum in our praying. There needs to be continuation. There needs to be furtherance. As we move towards God, God moves towards us and then he moves us. I mean, one of the great delights on the 7.30am prayer morning is the fact that when somebody touches a nerve in their praying, there's a good, hearty amen. Isn't there, Zach? <laughs> Zach has one of the best amens going around. <laughs> I appreciate it, Zach, greatly. So here we have a wonderful, rich encouragement. Where are you in your prayer life? Are you parked at the station or are you steaming down the track? If you're not steaming down the track, ask God to to crank you up, give you a head of steam and get you praying more earnestly. In verse 12, it's like like another little addendum, but no, it's not. It's a continuation. Uh, Jesus is talking about, uh, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do you do also for them? Now, I'm not sure about you, but being brought up in Sunday school years ago before I gave it the flick, um, this was spoken as a moralism for all people, you know, inside and outside of the church. But Jesus doesn't mean it that way. He's saying this is the essence for being a disciple. And if it's not you're not carrying it out as you should be, pray about it because you've got a parcel of prayer, uh, you've got a package of prayer to work with. When uh, us five Dipro's children being brought up by, mostly by my mother because my father was away um, pioneering and doing it, getting another farm going and so on, uh, we would fight. Uh, we would uh, act selfishly. We would be downright naughty and cheeky at times and mum would bring this out, Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do also for them. If I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times. But this rule here is an essential measure of all Christ's disciples. Don't deal with others as they might deal with us. The negative form of the rule says, if you don't enjoy being robbed, don't rob others. If you don't like being called names, don't call others names. If you don't like being hated, don't hate others. But Jesus is not being negative. He's being very positive. He means if you enjoy being loved, love others. If you like receiving things, give to others. If you like being appreciated, appreciate others. That's what he's saying. So our experience of God's goodness and God's grace in answering our prayers It's a wonderful, wonderful incentive for us to do good to others, both in quantity and quality. Jesus says here, in everything, in everything. 
Well, to wrap up our time this morning, two things stand out, as we said at the start. One thing to avoid, that is a hypercritical attitude. The other is what we need to adopt, and that's a more prayerful attitude. Now, Jesus warns us here in this passage that our sinful nature, with our sinful nature, there's a grave and real danger of becoming judgmental. And he balances that against the danger of being undiscriminating. He says, don't just be gullible and don't just go along. He says, stand up for the truth and pick out error. And he tempers this danger by warning about lacking a trusting persistence in prayer with God. He encourages prayer. He's saying to us, prayer does something and it sees things happen. It's God's grace gift to us in the face of our weakness and our proneness to becoming hypercritical. We might feel there's a lofty distance between us and God, but prayer is just a wonderful gift to come close to God and appreciate and value his presence. I've said this before, but our principal in, in theological college says there's a time to sitting in a chair like you're sitting in here now, a time just to put your arms on the armrest to sit back and dwell and value the person and the character and the presence of your God. Just sit still. Don't be on the move all the time. Just sit still and value your God and pray to him. God has wonderful rectifying grace. He wants to lead us and grow us as his disciples. So may God do something. May he do something afresh in you today as you humbly ask and seek and knock. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you're always about doing something. You work all things together for good to those who love you because you want us to be more Christ-like. So, Father, find us requesting, find us asking, find us looking to you, find us uh, spending time in your presence and not being satisfied with our current lot or our current position. Cause progression, cause growth in our lives, Father. Cause us to grow in our prayer life to be thrilled at your working because we've seen you do something in changing others' lives and in changing our lives. And we would ask this all for the sake of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.